Second Kings chapter two. As we're contemplating as a church that we're at a transition point, moving forward into our soon-to-be-ours building, better facilities, more suited to our needs as a congregation. We thank God for His past, but it's the time of transition is now upon us. And I don't know about you, but it hasn't come quick enough. But I discovered that God's sense of timing and my sense of timing doesn't always agree. Anybody else ever discover that for yourselves? That God's sense of timing and your sense of timing, well, we're the ones who adjust because He doesn't. But God has been doing wonderful things in our midst. He's been working in our hearts. He's been changing our mindsets, changing our, 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 the paradigm by which we live. And it's all very, very good. And now by the grace of God, a season is coming to a close. And a new season is ahead of us. It'll be a short season and then there'll be another season come autumn time where we're just going to hit, hit the road full blast with as much organized as we can possibly hear the heart of God on, which is, which is a lot. But I thought this evening that we would review a bit of the story that we took six weeks to tell from Second Kings chapter 2. And that is, we're going on. We're going on. We had it down fairly well. You're a little bit out of practice. But when I asked the three questions, how are you? You learned to respond, we're going on. And then I would say, you are, where are you going? And then you responded to the double portion. And then I would ask, how are you going to get there as the Lord lives? Second Kings chapter 1, verse 1. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Stay here, I tarry, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said to him, As the Lord lives and as your soul is, I have no plans on settling here. I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said to him, Don't you know that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he, meaning Elisha, said, Yes, I know it, but you just hold your peace. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elijah and said to him, Don't you know that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he said, I know it, you just hold your peace. And Elijah said to him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, 
As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And the two of them went on together. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together, smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I be taken away from you. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me, when I am taken from you, it shall be so unto you. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a, a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and part of them asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah does rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Here is a man that knew what he wanted. Was tempted once, twice, three times, four times. How many times do we read? To stay where he was. But Elisha was determined. You see, for Elisha had been the servant of Elijah for about ten years. And you know when you're with somebody for ten years of the caliber of a man named Elijah, this, this strange prophet, you get used to the supernatural. You get used to the miraculous being the normal. You get used to, I wonder where Elijah is today because the Lord just might take him here and take him there and people being raised from the dead and miracle after miracles by the, by the hands of this prophet by the name of Elijah. One man being able to stand against 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and win. A man who could eat angels' food and go in the strength of that food for 40 days. A man who was very powerful in the history of Israel. A man where the anointing of the Spirit of God was normal experience for him. 
And when Elisha says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I could translate that in modern English saying, I have seen something worked out in you that I want. I've observed this for ten years being your servant. You're about to go, but I want you to leave that anointing. I want you to leave that call. I want you to leave that covering, that spirit, that relationship with God. I am desperate to have for myself what I have seen in you. I will not leave you. Elijah, finally, when they crossed that Jordan River, said, what is it that you're after? And then Elisha verbalizes what's in his heart. I want a double spirit, double portion of that spirit. I want to inherit this thing. I don't want this to pass off the face of the earth. I want to inherit this, this call of God, this anointing, this, this union with God. Elisha is about to lose all contact now with his mentor, Elijah. He knows it. But there's one last thing that Elisha's got to get from Elijah before he goes. Elisha has made a lot of decisions. And now he's at a major climax and he's got to come to the ultimate decision of his life. He's a man that has forsaken everything. He's burnt his bridges behind him. You'd remember from 1 Kings 19, verses 19 to 21, when Elijah went across the field and found Elisha plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. You remember how he threw his his mantle on him and uh, upset the life of Elisha forever. You know, there's a call of God on my life. And Elisha was a wealthy man. You don't have 12 yoke of oxen, you're not a poor man. He is a wealthy man. He has a natural, very wealthy inheritance as far as this world goes. But he deemed knowing the anointing more precious than the value of this world. Start out with Elisha, Elijah. He's been with him for 10 years as a servant. He's worked no miracles, but he's been hanging around the prophet. And now the prophet's going to go. And he has got such a hunger, such a desire, that he must have what Elijah has. <coughs> he is tested once, twice, three times, four times. How many times in the story is he tested? How strong is your desire? What price are you willing to pay? At what level will you be satisfied? If you and I want revival, which we do, we must never stop pressing. Listen carefully. We can never sit back and become satisfied. We must never stop pressing. 
And God will bring experiences into your life as a barometer reading of your heart. He's seeing if you have, have you become accustomed to life as it is? Have you become accustomed to the level of church experience or the level of, of spiritual life that you've got? Have you unknowingly to yourself got comfortable with it? Are you really hungry? And we say that we are, and then we go through the test of time. And how many know passing time is going to be one of the hardest tests there is in the spiritual life? Because when time goes by, the more and more the depths of your heart get exposed. And I've discovered that God, all the way through Scripture, loves to put people through the test of time. Loves it. How many years did Joseph wait from the time when God spoke his word until he became the prime minister of Egypt, until his brothers came and bowed down to them? How much time went by before Abraham had a son by Sarah? The test of time. Because time has this way of just checking out what is in the depths of your heart. And I've discovered, well, I think God is slow. I've discovered God knows far better than I do. And he's sifting my heart far more than I can appreciate and understand. I remember, and I've told this story a few times, that, oh, some must be 40 years ago now, I attended a evangelistic crusade by a Canadian evangelist was fairly famous and he was a Pentecostal man he loved to pray for the sick and cast out devils and he was a signs and wonders evangelist and a bit of a fiery preacher and he had a a banner across the back wall behind him as he preached and in big words it said Jesus is never late and then it was signed Lazarus (laughs) when I think he's late He's not late. His timing is perfect. And Elijah is putting Elisha to the test because if you really want this thing, if you really want this, you will press me and press me and press me to to keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. Stay here. I mean, the sons of the prophets said, you stay here. Elijah says, you stay here. But he says, no, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I have seen something. I've tasted something. I've witnessed something. It's got down inside my heart. And there's just no way that I could ever live without this. How hungry are we for the presence of God? How hungry are we that revival break out? How hungry are we to see the lost saved? How hungry are we to see missions develop and expand? How hungry are we to see the sick healed? How hungry are we? Elisha had to make decisions to move forward. When we went through this teaching that took six weeks to go through this chapter, we we discussed that there are dangers. And there's a danger of being satisfied. That's dangerous. We settle down. 
at a certain level of spirituality and before you know it, you spend the rest of your life at that level. There is a danger of being satisfied. That's dangerous. I am interested in more than in being saved and going to heaven. I'm interested in far more than that. We also said there's a danger, but we also said there are decisions that we had to make. We cannot be slack. We saw that Elisha, a wealthy man, forsook everything to follow the path of a lonely prophet. And we have to be in guard against settling down. And we have to make constant decisions. We're going to move forward because the goal is only attained by repeated decisions to go for it. Has to be repeated, has to be repeated, it has to be repeated. We're going to go for it. We have to develop, we have to go from phase to phase, we have to go from glory to glory, we have to go from decision to decision, we have to go from one level of experience with the Lord to another level of experience with the Lord. Where does this journey take us? It's, this starts out in Gilgal. And we looked at what Gilgal meant. What does it mean to arrive at Gilgal? If you remember the series that we did there, we said Gilgal in the Old Testament is a place of restoration. It's always a place where you get to start over. Thank God for that. New beginnings, amen? That's new beginnings. It was at Gilgal that 40 years of wretched wandering in the wilderness was brought to its conclusion. It was at Gilgal that you changed the menu. No more manna, but grapes and pomegranates and all the lush food of the land of Canaan. It was at Gilgal that they celebrated a new life and they began to celebrate Passover for the first time in 40 years. It was at Gilgal that they had this revelation of the captain of the host of the Lord. Do you remember he said to Joshua, take your shoes off? And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And I like the answer. He said, neither. It's not a question whose side am I on. The question is whose side are you on? I have come as the captain of the host of the Lord. And it was at Gilgal that they got a revelation of the strength of their captain as the host of the Lord. How all the power was revealed at that point. So they knew that they would have the power to take the future. When we got the power to take the future. So Gilgal is a great place. It's wonderful. New beginnings. Get to eat the grapes instead of the manna. A new life. Get a revelation of the power of God. Why don't we just camp there? Let that be the height of our experience. You're saved. You're going to go to heaven. Be nice, won't it? But the problem with Gilgal is no victories were ever won there. No battles were fought there. No no victories were ever won there. Church, there's more to gain than just going to heaven when we die. There is, in the future, a revealing of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ when He appears. There is, while we are waiting, there is a release of the supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit for our lives and for our ministry today. There is a revelation of divine power that can really intervene in people's lives. What a testimony we heard this morning. 
What an awesome miracle and a testimony. I'm going for it, church. I'm going for it. I'm hungry for it. We can't just stay at the place we enter in and say, well, I'm saved, I'm going to go to heaven, that's okay. I'm sorry, the Bible is not about just starting out. The Bible is about finishing your course. Amen? It's not about just beginning. You need to end well. You've got to persevere to the end. You've got to pass the tests. You've got to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing and never be satisfied until you break through. The Bible is about persevering to the end and breaking through. So I've made a choice, and you as a congregation agree that you'd do this. You would leave Gilgal and you'd press on. Because after we talked about Gilgal, I asked you a question. How are you? And you said, you're going on. But I just taught you about Gilgal, but you said you're going on. Well, where are you going to go? Don't you like Gilgal? No, I'm going to go to the double portion. Well, how are you going to get there? As the Lord lives. So we went from Gilgal, then we went to Bethel. Oh, Bethel's a nice place. Maybe you should just camp there. Bethel, as you remember, was the place of revelation. Bethel was a place where you have to make further decisions in your life of what you're going to do. You see, Abraham, in the book of Genesis, had to learn after he got into the land of Canaan that he had to build altars, and he built a couple of altars at this place called Bethel. He had to dedicate himself further to the revealed will of God. He had to turn his back on unbelief, because here you remember the story of Abraham. When he went into the promised land, it was a time of famine. I could just think Abraham going and say, well, thanks a lot. I gave up everything for this. And it's in a time of famine. And in a moment of weakness, he forsakes the promised land, goes down into Egypt where he really gets into trouble, almost loses Sarah to a foreign king, and he picked up someone named Hagar that would plague him for the rest of his life. And he had to go back to, to the promised land. And when he went back, he had to make an altar. And he made it at a place called Bethel. And he is committing himself to the will of God, committing himself to the land that God had shown him. And we've got to come to this place where we make these altars and these, these points of decision that we could look back in our life. It was there that I made that decision to keep pressing and keep pressing and keep pressing. Jacob also built an altar at a place called Bethel. Do you remember the story when he went to sleep with a pillow made out of stones? I don't know how well I would sleep. But he sleeps on the bed of stones and a pillow. But you know, that was okay. Because God gave him a dream. Remember the dream he had? He saw the heavens open. And he saw a ladder from the earth to the heavens. And he saw angels ascending and descending. The thing is, at Bethel, when you and I make these commitments, God does something in our hearts. Opens in our hearts. You know what? You begin to dream dreams. Desires and hopes are birthed within you. Visions start to fill your heart. There's excitement as you begin to think about the future and the potentials and the possibilities. And and God just opens your heart to dream about the potential of ministry and the potential future that is there. You just dream how God can use you. 
Anybody had your Bethel experience? Have you got unfulfilled dreams? Desires in your heart that you really believe God is going to show you things that hasn't happened yet? You know, that's, that's Bethel. And we think about the future. But it's at Bethel in the scripture that you've got to make a decision whether you're going to live in faith or live in fear. Because to move to the future, you've got to leave your present. That's uncomfortable at times. You've got to leave your present to move to your future. There is a man by the name of King Jeroboam who let fear rule him in the place called Bethel. You see, after Solomon died, the kingdom split into two nations. Two tribes came known as Judah, ten tribes came known as Israel. And King Jeroboam took over the ten tribes of Israel. And just to stop the people for sake of fear, leaving the ten tribes of Israel in the north to go down to the Jerusalem in Judah of the south where they could worship at the temple, he was afraid of losing the people. And so what he did is he makes two golden calves. One at each end of the kingdom, so the people would never have to leave to worship. And he created idols. Why? Fear. Bethel is a place where we have to make the decision that we're going to move on to the dreams that God has given us, and we will not cave into fear. And we agreed to that. Because after we talked about Bethel, I asked you a question. I asked you, how are you? And even after Bethel, the place where God gives dreams and visions to you and births all sorts of desires, you even still had the audacity to say to me, you're still going on. So where are you going to go? And you said, we're going to the double portion. And how are you going to get there? And you said, as the Lord lives. I said, okay, so we... Make the journey to a place called Jericho. Remember how high those walls were? Remember when we described Jericho, how some 40 feet of it? You remember that? Remember how thick they were? Jericho is a place where we learn about reliance, relying on the power of God. It's a place of memories. Who can ever forget the story of Jericho? You might have forgotten the story of King Jeroboam and the golden calves, but I'll guarantee you every Sunday school child remembers the story of Jericho. Don't you? You may have not known that Abraham built altars at a place called Bethel, but you do know the story of of Jericho. Who doesn't know the story of Jericho? Do you remember the strange strategy that God gave for its conquest? Don't say anything, but march around the city for seven days? Does that sound like a plan? Does that sound like a plan? Does that sound reasonable at all? But the thing is, you know the story well. Six days they walk around it. And then on the seventh day they walk around it seven times for a total of 13. Don't ever say that 13 is not unlucky. It's unlucky. It was after the 13th time that the power fell. Forget the superstitious stuff. The power fell. Who could forget the moment when the power fell? It's been a hundred years since Azusa, and none of us were alive when it happened. But for some reason, people still talk about it. 
and we weren't even there. Who can ever forget those, those moments in history when the power falls? Who can exaggerate what happens when the power falls? How, many, how often spiritual movements are traced to a defining moment where the power fell and it gave birth to a whole new momentum. What a breakthrough. Who wouldn't like to live there? Anybody want to go back to Azusa Street and just live there? No takers on that one. It was wonderful. I mean, there's books. and A hundred years later, we're still talking about it. Where the power fell. And I tell you, Jericho, I mean, what a nice place to live. It's a holiday resort. Palm trees, perfect weather. It's a beautiful place to settle. You can live in a holiday existence in Jericho and you can live there with fond memories of what God used to do. I mean, you're so close to history. Everybody wants to go to the Holy Land, be close to that that history. And we live in memories of what God used to do. But the problem is, Jericho was only a beginning. It's not the entire promised land. There's much more to inherit. There's much more to take. Are we settled for a breakthrough? Or do you want the totality of God's purpose? What, what are you after? What do you want? And after I tempted you with Jericho, I asked you, how are you? And even still you said, we're going on. I said, well, where do you want to go? You said, to the double portion. And I asked you again, and just, come on, how do you plan on getting there? As the Lord lives. All right, let's go to Jordan. Let's go to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is a place where you're going to experience a release of the power of God through you. A release of the power. Now Jordan in the Old Testament has got this great history in the Old Testament. And there are three times in the Old Testament where there was a miracle crossing of the Jordan River. The first time is found in in Joshua chapter 3. And if you remember as we talked through that, we said that this involved natural sight. Do you remember that the priest carried the ark of the Lord in the front and then the rest of the nation had to be a certain distance behind it but they had to keep their eyes on the ark of the covenant. And there was a lesson there we said that you've got to train your senses, train your emotions, train your mind, train your heart, train your eyes not to look on things that are natural. Don't look at the Jordan. Don't look at the giants on the other side. Don't look at the city of Jericho. Look at the presence of God. You've got to train yourself to do that. That's not easy. You have to train yourself to do that. Focus your attention on the ark that is ahead of you. Concentrate on the presence of the Lord that goes before you because it's not by might and it's not by power. If the Holy Ghost doesn't do it, there's nothing you and I are going to do about it. We have to train ourselves. 
to focus our heart, our mind, our attention on the presence of the Lord. And then you remember how those priests carrying the ark, that they stepped into the water. You remember that, don't you? I mean, back at the Red Sea with Moses, at least God opened the Red Sea before anybody stepped in. But this time, no, nothing opens up until they get their feet wet. And I have no idea how far they waded into that water before the waters rolled back. This was a real step of faith. They walked into death. They walked into a flood time. And there's a lesson there for the nation to cross over. Somebody has to pay the price. Those who carry the word of God, those who carry the presence of the Lord, had to walk into death. And as they took that position in dying to themselves, that it held back the waters and the rest of the nation went over for free. Their faith wasn't tested. They didn't have to stand there holding those waters back. But those with the word of God and the presence of God had to stand in that position. It was a miracle crossing. They were in the promised land. That was the first miracle crossing of the Jordan. The second one, we just read it in chapter 2 of 2 Kings, verses 4 to 12, where Elijah is going to cross it and Elisha will go with him. But we also said, and here's the important lesson, we also said this. This second miracle crossing of the Jordan River also requires sight. But this time is not natural sight. If you see me when I'm taken, you can have the request. Now what does that mean, if you see me? Well, that chariot of fire that came down was no ordinary chariot. Those horses that Elisha did see were no ordinary horses. You had to pierce through the veil and see the unseen. You had to see things that are spirit and not natural. In the natural, horses don't fly. In the natural, chariots don't fly through the sky. This was some sort of angelic being, manifestation of some sort. And what Elijah is saying to Elisha, do you want this kind of ministry? Do you want this kind of ministry where nothing will ever shake you? Where Jezebel used to shake me, but after never shook me again. Do you want that kind of confidence? Do you want that kind of life, that victory, that nothing will shake you? Do you want to have that steadfastness? Do you want to get above failing trials and temptations? Because of fear and weakness. You want to get to the point where your faith never, never doubts. You want to get to that. Then you've got to see past the natural. And you've got to see into the Spirit. You've got to see into the Spirit. That takes determination. That takes guts. That takes fearlessness. You've got to see what the natural eye cannot see. You see, there's a gift of the Spirit called discerning of spirits that lets you do exactly that. But more than that, there's this thing called faith. What is faith? It's the substance of things not seen. The evidence of things. Substance of things, hopefully the evidence of things not seen. 
That's what faith is. Faith allows you to see what the natural eye cannot see. Faith has got to be grasping these realities. Awareness of spiritual reality needs to capture our heart and our imagination. Faith conquers everything. And the thing is, Elisha saw. He saw. Elijah was taken up, never to see him again. But Elisha is on his own now. And there comes a point in your life where you're going to have to do this on your own. It's going to have to be your faith without the help and without the assistance of any other person. This is between you and God. There's nobody can help you. Elisha was all alone and he was on the wrong side of the Jordan River. He wasn't even in the promised land anymore. He's on the wrong side of the river. And he's going to have to cross this river on his own. There comes a time in your life where God is going to strip you of all support and you've got to prove God for yourself. Amen. You have to prove God for yourself. It's time to take a stand. It's time to prove God for yourself. You're left all alone. You're on the wrong side of the Jordan River. You're outside the promised land. But your future and your destiny is on the other side of that river. What are you going to do? How are you going to move into your destiny? Are you determined? Will you shake yourself and make the bold move necessary and trust God for the results? You have to prove God for yourself. Well, he had said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives. You see, the same God that was with Elijah didn't leave the earth with Elijah. He happened to go with Elijah and stay behind as well because God's everywhere. And Elisha moved into that relationship with God for himself. And I like what he did. That mantle that ten years ago Elijah had come along and threw it on his shoulders. That mantle That's the one thing that Elijah left behind. He picked it up off the ground. He wrapped it up. He looked at this Jordan River. It's his my time to prove God. And he smote it. At first, nothing. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Church, it's time to rise up and cry. Where is the Lord God of signs and wonders? Where is the Lord God of miracle healings? Where is the Lord God of the conviction of sin? Where is the Lord God of revival? Where is the Lord that's going to sweep this city into the kingdom of heaven? Where is the Lord God that's going to get our children? Where is the Lord God that's going to restore our marriages? Where is the Lord God that's going to appear in visions to sinners? Where is the Lord God? It's time to cry out, Where is the Lord? Don't say, Well, can't be His will. 
No, we've come too far. Like Elisha, I can say, I have seen too much. I've tasted too much. I've experienced too much. I cannot settle for less. I am hungry. So why am I telling this story that it took six weeks to tell you? Why? Because there's two reasons. I want to share this with you now. Again, because we are at a critical time in our own history as a fellowship. We have appreciated what the Lord has done in the last year, but the season is now over. It's a different season. It's a season where we've been able to regroup. It's been a season where we're able to have some paradigm shifts take place in our heart and our mind. A season of healing, perhaps. A season of knitting hearts together. And we will, that season, in a sense, will never end. May the Lord continue to do that. But now it's time to move to the next destination as a congregation. There's, we're making a major move. And there is a significant shift in our understanding of what is happening. We are definitely moving into a new phase towards entering our purpose. And now God is resting on our shoulders new emphasis. And he's putting on our shoulders new responsibilities. That is what is happening in the next several months. That's why I'm sharing it. And the second reason I'm sharing it is because my own personal experience, I have seen the power of God too often to be satisfied with anything less. This message from Second Kings chapter 2 is not original with me. I didn't come up with it. You, you know, wow, well, how do Eugene put that together? I stole it. It's not my message. I stole it with the man's permission. I asked and said, do you mind if I take this series and if I preach it? And he said, preach it all you want. My friend's name is David Wins. He preached this in a city called Kigali, Rwanda, in Africa. I was with David there. There was about four of us, I believe, there preaching at conference. It was the first of my many visits to the country of Rwanda. As I shared this morning, I'm about to go back to Africa in June. I'm heading back to Africa, going to a place called Bujumbura. And none of you seem to know where that was. Then if I told you it was the capital of Burundi, that didn't help you either. Uh, Burundi, Rwanda, the same ethnic group, same tribes. After I'm finished in Bujumbura, I'm going to Harare, Zimbabwe for about 10 days. I think most people know where Zimbabwe is, I'm going there. Both countries, Rwanda and Zimbabwe, have experienced dire devastation that none of us here can possibly understand. Even after visiting the country, you still don't get it, what those people have been through. I was in Bulawayo, which is a large city in Zimbabwe. It was David and I together preaching this 
this conference. It was at the height of the troubles of Zimbabwe. Do you understand 250 million percent inflation? Any concept of what that means? 250 million percent inflation. That means they print a hundred trillion dollar bill and they wouldn't buy you a cup of coffee. Do we have any understanding what that means to people who live in such an economy? No schools. No public schools at all in the country. None of them running. No hospitals. No doctors. No nurses. No teachers. No petrol in the country. Disease, cholera spreading throughout the country. And just to make sure that you vote the right way in the election coming up, they raped your girls, your children. They just make sure that you voted the proper way. Do you have any idea what that does to a nation? David and I were there when it was at its worst in Zimbabwe. There was a conference of what's called the Evangelical Fellowship of Zimbabwe, which means all the denominations had gathered together for a conference and they were discussing as churches, how do we respond to the crisis in our nation? And they had no answers. It was a three-day conference that they did and that David and I came at the end of that because we were going to take over and give them three days of preaching. But when we got there, they were dead, lifeless, hopeless, disillusioned, overwhelmed, hurting, pained, hungry. And they were powerless, in a very, very sad state. And then I had to preach. And the best way I could describe it is that the nation of Zimbabwe was like a patient brought into A&E and was bleeding out, bleeding to death. And there wasn't hardly, they were gasping their last breaths of life for survival. And somehow in the providence of God, I was the doctor on duty as the patient came in. I tell you, learn to preach for your life. You learn to preach like a wild man if you got to. And I had to bring a pulse back to these discouraged, defeated people. I preached out of Ephesians 6, and by some miracle, it's like you put those things in on the heart, on, on the patient, and they jump up. And by some miracle, through the preaching of the word, the patient jumped up, and life and the heartbeat came back. And at least it was going to live. And then for the next three days, David and I spoke from nine in the morning till about three o'clock in the afternoon, just tag team, preach, preach. We take 45 minutes, the next one go. We did it, you know, from 9 o'clock in the morning, fed them something to eat because they usually probably had nothing to eat except what we gave them. 
and we preached at about three o'clock and then we went out at night preached somewhere else and then came back the next day and, and preached and preached and preached and I remember that I spoke about the power of the Exodus using the book of Exodus and the, the power of God that was revealed in the plagues and, and David spoke about how God does his best work when things start going dark at the ninth hour miracles take place but that's the moment that light turns to darkness and we got preaching for three and after days of preaching like this breakthrough was achieved as faith started coming back into that group of people and the interpreter that we were using or a couple of interpreters the interpreter turned to David and said do you mind if we stop preaching for a while we Africans have got to dance. And I don't know how to describe for you. I can't find the words. I wish I could speak it out in tongues so you could understand what I'm saying. I can't describe the emotion of that room that day when the death rattle became a shout. Hallelujah. I can't describe it for you. I have seen the power of God. I have seen what faith will do. I can't be satisfied with anything less. I've seen it. I'm going to Bujumbura, Burundi. I shared this morning, 20 years ago today, 10,000 people lost their lives in Rwanda. April, May, and June 1994, one million people were massacred in the space of 100 days. They slaughtered 10,000 people per day. Weapon of choice, machete. Can't understand it. I was there in Kigali. And while I was there, God reminded me of a prayer that I had prayed some 30 years ago. Some 30 years ago, I was studying the life of David in Psalm 142, verse 4, when David cries out, No man cared for my soul. And I said, God, what does that mean? Because I felt there was a message that God wanted to speak to me. No man cares for my soul. But I didn't get it. You ever have that feeling you're reading scripture or something there, but you're just not getting it? Well, I just wasn't getting it. I just wasn't satisfied. I just don't get this. What does it mean when somebody cries out, no man cares for my soul? And I sought the Lord about it, but I never got an answer to my satisfaction. And then you just forget you prayed about it and you carry on with life. And 25 years later, I find myself in Rwanda where this genocide took place. Not nice to talk about, but I visited the genocide sites. I walked the streets where the dead lay and the dogs would be eating the corpses. I went to the river where they dumped the bodies in. There were so many, they came log-jammed. And I began to feel, in what must only be a very small degree, I began to feel pain. 
What does it mean when the world turns its back on you? Nobody cared for Rwanda because there's no silver, no gold, no oil, just peasants, just people. The armies of the world sent their armies into Rwanda to get their own nationals out. The UN was withdrawn to let the tribes slaughter one another. And in my heart, of having the world turn their back on you because you're just a peasant. They were slaughtered 10,000 people a day. I do when they're speaking at a pastor's conference. It was a tent. We were in a tent. And there were about 200 pastors there. You didn't ask and how many are in your church. Because the most common answer you would have is that they're all dead. You didn't ask questions like that. These pastors needed encouragement. What do you tell people who have gone through this kind of stuff and survived it? What do you tell somebody who's lost their wives and their children, their parents? Well, the message that was preached was going on. Second Kings chapter 2. Are you going to keep pressing? Are you going to believe that God is greater than genocide? Are you going to believe that God raises the dead? Or are you going to let genocide stop you from going on? Days of preaching. I can appreciate in the Gospels where Jesus preached in the wilderness for days at a time because the constant preaching of the word hour by hour, hour by hour, day after day, it does something to build faith. Little sermonettes once a week really hasn't got much power to build a lot of faith. Hour by hour by hour by hour we preached. Well, David was preaching about going on going on, 
going on. And after days of preaching about going on, something happened. The interpreter got so excited. His life was put back in his soul. He didn't interpret. He started dancing as he interpreted. His life came back into his heart. Life came back into his soul. The pastors that attended that conference, something happened in that conference. The power fell. The word broke through. Faith was birthed. No matter what they had been through, even genocide, they're going on. They're going on. At the end of this whole thing, they couldn't contain themselves any longer. These pastors got out of their seats and they began to parade and they did a Jericho march. And they marched around the tent. They marched around the outside of the tent. They marched around the inside of the tent. And there was victory and the heavens opened up. I can't describe it. I can't describe it to you. If you could keep a dry eye, you're a better person than me to see that. I'm a privileged man to have seen what God can do. They celebrated, they danced, they sang, they rejoiced. Life had come back to their souls. God raises the dead. So, I've made a decision in my life. I'm going on. I made a decision. I will not stop short of the double portion. I've made a decision. I will not settle for a church dwelling place or anything else I will not settle for a church that does not know the anointing I will not settle for a church where the gifts of the spirit don't operate I will not settle for a church that has no manifestation of the gifts of the spirit I'm not interested I believe to become everything that God wants us to be, we need the gifts of the Spirit. We need the prophetic word. We need the tongues. We need the interpretation. We need the word of knowledge. We need the word of wisdom. We need the gift of faith. We need the discerning of spirits. I'm convinced we can't evangelize without them. God has given us tools for evangelism. It's called gifts of the Holy Ghost. How did Jesus know that woman at the well had five husbands? Can you explain that to me? How did he know that? How did he know Lazarus was already dead? How did he know that? I need the Holy Ghost to say, go to that person. Go to this person. I need the Holy Ghost to say, there's a man in the, in the street called Straight, and he's praying, and he just had a vision of you coming in. I need to hear the Holy Ghost like that. I need to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. I need a demonstration of the power of God to a sin-sick world that there's somebody greater than their sin-sickness. 
And I will not settle for a church any less than that. I'm going on. It's my decision. It's my decision. I will not settle for gradual growth. I'm not interested in ones or twos coming to the Lord. I don't read about that in the book of Acts. I hear where it says they filled Jerusalem, all Jerusalem with that doctrine. I see where the Lord added to the church daily. I see the number of disciples multiplying. And I am not content with gradual growth. I'm going on. I'm going on to that double portion. The flow of the Spirit of God. I have made a decision. I will not settle for a form of the gospel that does not bring people into a confrontation with the power of God. I'm not interested in gospel to only say, say this from his prayer and you're going to go to heaven. I want people to be confronted with the power of God to radically alter their souls. That's what I'm after. And I will not settle for a gospel preaching that has less than that in mind. I'm after transformed lives. A lot of people don't have to wait to die to go to hell. They're already there. Their life is hell. And they need the power of God and they need the love of God to clean them up here and now in this life. And I won't settle for a gospel that's less than that. I've made a decision. I will prove God for myself. Church, I'm going on. Now the question is, are you coming with me? There's a vision. There's purpose. If we're going on, we need you to pray. The prayer meeting is the, is, is the engine of that drives the thing. Without the prayer meeting, there's no petrol going in the tank. We need people to pray. Because you see, there's a city here that needs the power of God. But there's more than that. I'm waiting for a time to hear the report from India. Because there's a world out there that God wants us to touch. You can't go on a trip like that and not get your heart stirred, can you? And we are the vessel of God's love to a hurting world. Dwelling place is not moving ahead for its own sake and for its own comfort. No. Absolutely not. Dwelling place is making this move because it's the next step towards the double portion. Because it's the next step to reaching a lost and a dying world with the power of God. No matter what it looks like, nothing less is my goal and is my heart. So can I ask you a question? How are you? You don't sound like it. 
Tell me like you mean it. How are you? Where are you going? How will you get there? As the Lord lives. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask Darla to come back to the keyboard.